This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctorate of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentration, and the Doctorate of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministry or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. Enjoy a dinner with faculty, observe a class, and immerse yourself in the life of our community by joining us for an upcoming Evening Master of Divinity Preview Day on February the 27th. Visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity for more information. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation with Caitlin Beatty, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and this week's sponsor. For the next few episodes, you'll hear interviews with the Director of Faith for Justice, Michelle Higgins, the Atlantic's political and religion writer, Emma Green, the creators of the Dwell Bible app, and Jennifer Harvey, author of Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. This week's podcast episode is brought to you by Shine. Living in God's Light, a dynamic Sunday school curriculum co-published by Minnow Media and Brethren Press. Together, one small step at a time, your church can be a place where children are welcome known and loved by God, a space where Jesus' good news of peace is proclaimed, a space where small and tall learn together about God's story, a space where children are encouraged to shine. Providing resources for teachers and children ages 3 through grade 8, Shine Curriculum is easy to use with detailed teacher's guide, colorful and engaging student pieces, and resource packs, and musical CDs for both preschoolers and elementary children. To learn more, visit shinecurriculum.com. Let Shine inspire your church to follow Jesus and grow in faith so that children are nurtured and sent into the world to shine. Caitlin Betty is editor-at-large for Christianity Today, where she serves as the magazine's youngest and first female managing editor. She is the author of A Woman's Place, A Christian's Vision for Your Calling in the Office, the Home, and the World, as well as a companion group study guide by the same name. She is a graduate of Calvin College, home of Joust the Knight. That's correct, right? Y'all haven't changed the mascot recently, have you? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of, but honestly, I wasn't paying attention to sports when I was <laughs> I'm probably not the right person to ask. Well, I just think it's one of the one of the great mascots in NCAA. I, you know, I'm I'm a graduate of Campbell and we're the fighting camels. Um, you know, there's nothing more oh, fierce nice. than than a fighting camel. So uh Caitlin has yeah, uh written for uh the Washington Post, the Atlantic, the New York Times, and has been featured on NPR, CNN, ABC News. Religion News Services, and the Associated Press. This is an absolute delight to have you on our podcast. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Well, besides Joust the Night and Christianity Today, um, for those that aren't familiar uh, with your work, tell us a little bit more about you. 
Yeah. Well, I, um, I am first and foremost, a writer. And I think no matter what I am doing professionally, I will always be writing in some capacity. When I was a student at Calvin, I worked on the student newspaper and really enjoyed writing op-eds and uh, music and movie reviews and just really enjoyed helping to create a a conversation for the the campus and for the student community um, through the newspaper. And then um, after graduating, I studied abroad in Oxford, England for a semester and um, had some more theological study. And then when I came back, I started at Christianity Today and um, really served in some editorial capacity there for about a decade. So I know there's there's a lot of stereotypes about millennials um, being flighty and like non-committal, but I, I bucked the trend and like stayed committed to one to one organization in one place for for ten years. So I had a, a really wonderful informative experience there. Um, yeah, I, I'm doing a lot more freelance writing and editing these days, so that it's been fun to. Um, kind of share my perspective without always having to represent Christianity today, but um, there's also a vulnerability to that, and I've certainly been been thrown into some um, interesting and heated conversations on the internet <laughs> in the last mm. year. Um, so, which is, I think, has been exactly where God has wanted me to be, but has also, you know, come with some new challenges. Um, so, mm. yeah. Well, maybe we can dissect some of that, I'm sure, when we get uh, to having a conversation about your book here uh, in just a little bit. Um, now, in, in the introduction, I know that you were the youngest and first female managing editor at Christianity Today. Walk us through that experience. Yeah, yeah. So I, before that, I had been an associate editor, and I, another editor and I had started the, the website Hermeneutics which is a terrible pun. We, we recently just changed the name to CT Women, but Hermeneutics was Christianity Today's um, website highlighting women writers and women's perspectives on a variety of issues. And, you know, we started it as this blog back in 2009, not really knowing where it would go, but it really quickly, it really seemed to hit a nerve and starting conversations that I don't think that um, the other staff members were maybe attuned to or aware of, and so we were we were really grateful to be able to highlight women's voices and to see some of those women writers start appearing in the print magazine. You know that that hermeneutics kind of became an entree for them into um, into the broader mix. Like you don't just have to write for women; you can write for the whole church. Um, so yeah, I, I I had overseen that for several years, and then in the middle of that, and I I, I share this in my book, um, I was engaged to be married, and so I was thinking, well, my fiance at the time he was in Wisconsin, um, in in getting his MDiv, and I was thinking, well, I'll probably have to leave my job at CT, and I'm not sure what I'll do when I get to Wisconsin. Um, we ended up not getting married. Um, we went through a broken engagement and on the same day that we decided not to get married, I was offered the job, um, as managing editor of the print magazine at Christianity Today, just like within a matter of hours, I went from, you know, I'm this 
person's future wife and I'm moving to Wisconsin and I'm leaving my job to, hey, would you want to become <laughs> the first female managing editor and youngest managing editor? Would that interest you? And I just look at that as such a, a clear sense of provision from God that as this door was closing and, you know, there was real pain and loss involved in that, but this other door was opening. And I mean, ma managing a print magazine, you know, Christianity Today is the considered the flagship evangelical publication. It was founded by Billy Graham in the 50s. People, there are people all over the country who have subscribed to it for 30 years. A lot of people think of it as like, oh, that's my dad's magazine. We had that lying around my house when I was growing up. So it has a lot of historical heft and a lot of, I think, theological authority for, for our readers. And so that's a, it's a big responsibility to choose, you know, what our cover story is going to be or who we're going to ask for write, to write for us. Um, but you know, I really enjoyed being able to shape conversations for our readers and um, sometimes push them into new territory, um, you know, never in a way that for, forsook our theological convictions, but um, yeah, just in ways that introduced them to important cultural conversations or important voices. So it was a big responsibility, um, managing a lot of deadlines, a lot of other editors, and I did that for about four years. And then, you know, through a series of events and, you know, providential happenings, I, I did decide, you know what, I think I want to do my own thing for a while. But um, yeah, it was such a wonderful opportunity. And I, I still, you know, write for Christianity Today and consult with the editors and I'm just grateful that it continues to exist and continues to serve the church in the way that it has for a long time. Hmm. <clears throat> Let's talk about uh, A Woman's Place. Um, so here's, here's my review. Uh, this is an extraordinary narrative, is remarkably timely for the current polarizing climate around gender roles, equality, and identity. This book gives the philosophical, theological, and anthropological basis for the fact that men and women are equal in everything. And this should be required reading for the church. Every man and woman, like taking a breath, is required to continue to live. So this book breathes life into how we can interact and be better. Um, you cover this uh, a bit in the book. Um, but for our listeners, how did, how did your personal experience drive the narrative? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And and thank you, by the way, for the for the kind review. I guess I don't need to say anything else about it because all of your listeners will just go out and buy the book now. <laughs> of course, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, as I as I mentioned, I you know, I I spent my twenties really invested in my professional work. Um and, and really deriving a lot of joy and meaning in my daily work. Um, and yet I realized that professional work really was not a topic that the church that I was attending at the time was ever talking about. Like work was just not a, a topic of theological or spiritual formation. Um, it, it wasn't considered an, a, a matter of spiritual formation. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, a lot of us spend most of our 
time in any given week invested in our work. And you know, there's, there's a big conversation right now about the integration of faith and work, which is really good. But I realized too that 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 conversation tends to be led by men. And it also tends to be predominantly white. Um, there's, there, there's some growth in, in terms of ethnic diversity in that conversation, but it does, it has tended to be primarily white and kind of white collar, like um, there, there's little attention given to manual labor, the meaning of manual labor, blue collar work. So I just thought it was, I think there are some assumptions about gender and gender roles in the absence of women in the faith and work conversation. A, a lot of women of my generation find the whole stay-at-home mom versus working mom debate really tiring. And so I wanted, so all that to say, I really wanted to give other women a theological framework to understand the, the goodness and the significance of their daily work. Um, to say, you know, the re you, you have this God-given call to steward and shape um, whatever community, whatever institution, whatever, um, you know, industry you're in, God has given you to, a call to, state, to, to shape and steward that for his glory, for your good, for others' benefit. And some of the um, debates about women's roles have really um, hindered you in understanding that as a woman. And, you know, I really, I tried to write the book in a way that both egalitarians and complementarians could really hear. I think if you're reading between the lines, you will see that um, I am an egalitarian and that a lot of this conversation has implications for women in the local church. But I really tried to write it in a way that said, whatever you believe about women's roles in the local church, here's something that all of us can affirm. And some of the debates about women's roles are not biblical. They're not biblically rooted. They're culturally rooted. And we really need to untangle the biblical from the cultural. So we're not telling women, we're not hindering women in ways that are not biblically sanctioned, if that makes sense. So definitely arose from my own experience of wanting more theological resources for understanding my work as a woman, because I think um, women have been given certain messages about professional work over the years that are that are not helpful and are not rooted in scripture. Hmm. Well, let's let's jump right there. If that's okay with you. I mean, um, you can call me a loser, but I read the book twice. I, I mean, I, I finished it and then I turned back to the beginning. I started reading it again. Um, I love your writing style <laughs> and I love the way that you pull together the story of others into this beautiful narrative. But I'll confess the first time I was reading it, I kept thinking, okay, Caitlin, when are you going to get to what, you know, how all this matters for the church? And then I got to, to chapter eight. And you wrote, uh, if mainstream culture thinks gender roles are unimportant, church culture makes them too important. How can, how can the church help shift the culture on how we think, talk about, see, and act on gender roles? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think that, I think that every local church is responsible for equipping and empowering women 
for leadership within the church. And I think that's something that we, we lose in some of the gender roles debates that we think that if you're, if you, if you believe that certain teaching or preaching roles are reserved for men, you also, unfortunately, I have found that those traditions or churches um, tend to sideline women in general in local church ministry. They, that we, that there's a confusion of if we're talking about leadership, well, it has to be a man, even though nothing in scripture would, would support that. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's the responsibility of every church, regardless of denomination or teaching about, you know, the lead, lead pastor role to equip and empower women for leadership in the local church, because God created them male and female. And if, if one gender um, is sidelined in local ministry, then we're actually missing out on a core part of God's image bearing. Um, and so some of this, you know, there's, there's a concern in certain um, circles that we're losing the distinction between male and female or between gender roles. Where if we um, if we go with a more egalitarian approach, then we're going to lose the distinction between men and women. And what I'm saying is actually, no, I believe in actual differences between men and women, whether those are biological or cultural. I believe there are differences, and it's precisely because of the differences that we need to equip and empower women and women's voices in the local church, because we believe that women are going to bring a lot of things that men cannot bring. <laughs> um, so I think that would be just the baseline core conviction of mine. Um, in terms of, you know, some of the teachings on gender roles related to parenting and, and how that intersects with professional work, I think the local church should be a place where the so-called mommy wars just cease to exist because at the end of the day, those wars are, I believe, really rooted in cultural differences and cultural teachings rather than biblical teachings. And so the local church should be a place where no matter what decisions parents have made about how they're going to raise their children, you know, as long as they're loving their children well and caring for them, then the church should be a place of unity for, for parents rather than a place of division and judgment. I mean, I know anecdotally um, from a lot of women that they have experienced the local church to be a place of judgment or exclusion because of certain decisions that they have made. And I think that that is a real detriment um, to the body of Christ to let those kind of cultural and even worldly divisions, um, you know, come in the way of Christian fellowship. Um, yeah. And then I, I just think in general, like if the more that we make professional work a topic of, of, of normal, regular conversation in the local church, um, the more that women and men alike will be equipped and empowered in, in their daily work. Um, I, I think of women who are, you know, at the top of their fields in their professions, they're CFOs or vice presidents, or, you know, they run their own business or their own nonprofit. And so they're clearly leading and shaping culture um, in the marketplace. 
but then they come into the local church and they don't see any other women who are leading in the local church or they, you know, they have these gifts and talents, but they're asked, like all they're asked to do is to like bring something to the bake sale. Not that there's anything wrong with the bake sale, but they probably have gifts to give in the local church that are beyond, hey, can you bake something for the bake sale? So I think, um, yeah, I, I think about those women and how alienated they feel in the local church. And I think the more that we equip and empower women for leadership in the church, the more that those women will, will feel like they belong in the local church. Um, so those, those are a few things that, that come to mind. Yeah. Well, you know, that was, if I could have one critique of the book, I think I think you could push the ecclesial agenda further. Now, most likely that's my passionate projection onto where I think the church needs to go. And, and probably a side note, you know, for CBF, um, you know, we're a, um, a denominational network that was founded around endorsing women in ministry. And so I think that's important to know for our conversation. But, you know, I think if, if we want to see a radical change in how the church thinks and talks about and sees and takes action on gender roles, I think there needs to not just be a cosmetic change to our language. I think the church has to radically shift the culture of gender roles and leadership. Um, you know, one of the things I noted from the book, uh, Tim Keller, you quoted a couple of times in the book, um, you know, well, well read, well known person, but you know, he has absolutely no female pastoral staff on his multi-site mm. New York church. It's, it's all male. In fact, the females on their staff are referred to as directors or coordinators, not pastors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so as we, as we think around, you know, what, what would that look like for the church to radically shift its perspective on gender roles? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a good and big question. I mean, I, I should say, you know, having served at Christianity Today for 10 years, I was exposed to both egalitarian and complementarian writers and perspectives. And we were always publishing for a mixed audience. Um, now, I would say CT is in many ways functionally egalitarian because there are women at the top, you know, top leadership levels, and we publish women pastors all the time, you know, not just direct ministry directors or whatever, but like women who are ordained to the pastoral ministry as lead pastors. So in some ways we are functionally egalitarian, but we were always publishing for a diverse audience. And that has given me, I think, uh, that has given me an understanding of how and why complementarians arrive at the convictions that they do. Um, yes, there is just plain old, there is sometimes just plain old sexism in the mix, of course, but I also believe that, you know, the, the majority of complementarians are arriving at their convictions, not because they want to stifle women's voices, but because they, they believe that there are certain ordained roles and that if we give up on those roles, and what it, it seems like the Bible is saying in certain interpretations, then we're going to lose a core part of the New Testament teaching. I don't agree with them, but I understand why they go to the conviction, why they have the convictions that they do. Um, having said all that, I think the conversation around 
um, gender and power and gender roles has to be a bigger priority for all churches. Um, so if you're a complementarian church, it is incumbent upon you to examine ways that just plain old sexism might be informing the way that you treat women in your church. And I know a lot of your listeners are probably saying, well, aren't there, aren't there teachings inherently sexist? I would want to nuance it a little bit, but I absolutely think that gender and power and the link between the two need to be topics of regular conversation for every church and maybe especially for complementarian churches, because um, I, I know women in those churches often feel sidelined or overlooked or seen as temptations. You know, there, there are really deep-seated views about women and who and what women are that are um, not biblical, but that still seep into local church communities that, that really have to be examined and repented of, right? Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So that would be, that would be, um, I think those conversations need to be happening in all churches. So I don't know if that's, you probably want something more radical, <laughs> but, but that's where I've landed. <laughs> don't worry. This isn't the end of the episode. We still got 25 more minutes. We need to pause to tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Located in the heart of North Carolina, Campbell University Divinity School lives out its mission to be Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. Our school is known for preparing individuals academically, spiritually, and practically for the ministry in today's world. We offer multiple master-level programs, including several dual-degree program options, as well as doctorate of ministry program. Our Master of Divinity degree is flexible enough that individuals can build a program that best suits their interest and calling. Our students come from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, and age groups. They come because they share our mission and a desire to prepare for vocational ministry. Our students, faculty, staff, and alumni make up a beautiful community that supports each student in his or her journey. This kind of community is the one that's best experienced in person. Applications for the Master Level Degree Program and the Doctorate of Ministry Program are open for the upcoming Fall 2018 term. Learn more about our programs and apply online at divinity.campbell.edu. To your point about, you know, the, your, your critique of, can we push this farther regarding, you know, roles in the church? I, I'm very sympathetic to that perspective. And I had a friend, a really good friend, um, who is, has gone through seminary and she's a pastor. And so, of course, she has a lot writing on this topic. Um, and she critiqued the book along those lines. She said, you know, I, I thought it was great, except I really wish that you would have pushed more on the women in pastoral ministry topic. And she also critiqued that I used male pronouns for God. <laughs> so then we had a great conversation about that. Um, Believe but, it or not, that's yeah, where I was going to take our conversation next. <laughs> yeah, 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 and I'm I'm happy to to go there. Yeah, I mean, you wrote a you wrote a wonderful piece uh, towards the end of of this year, um, in which you conveyed why you continued to use uh, God and the language around God as as Father, um, and it's no biblical secret that the writers were, um, you know, highly patriarchal society where. 
women were most often viewed on the same level as slaves. And it's, it's also no secret New Testament writers were taking a very uh, primitive form of feminism um, that was revolutionary for the first century. And, and yet the, mm-hmm. the Bible is very masculine oriented. Um, it was written in a patriarchal time driven by the culture. And, and I would make the argument that, that since gender is a cultural concept uh, and because our access to God is always um, attributed through through people who form culture and because those cultures are typically patriarchal, the, the Christian God um, has this, this masculine language. We typically view God and um, talking about God as male um, and God's, 20 times more likely to be referred to as he than referred to in the feminine, even though there's over a hundred times in the old Testament and new Testament that God is referred to in the feminine. So do you see language um, and the language we use for God? And does it matter for this conversation? Mm, yeah. I mean, I think it absolutely, it absolutely matters because language is more or less shaping our grasp of reality and our grasp of really profound truths about who God is. And I think it's really important to remember that God is neither male nor female. I mean, I do think that a lot of Christians go around and in their conception of God, in the way that they think about God, they really think of God as a male. You know, they, they think that he is a biological male. And I, I realized I said he is the pronoun. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I think it's really important to, um, you know, I, I'm sympathetic actually to attempts to just avoid pronouns, alti- to, to refer to God as God as much as possible, because um, I do think it's important to protect against the the conception of God as a literal male. And I actually think we're more, we're more comfortable with that idea than we should be. Um, and that gets into the ways that um, Christianity has been formed in patriarchal societies. And we might say that that patriarchy has seeped into our conception of God in destructive or even unbiblical ways. Um, that said, I, I think I, I, I really, and I, I try to get at this in, in the piece that I wrote that you alluded to, I think what's really important for me and for our relationship with God and our, our daily walk and life with God is to remember that God is a person, you know, that, that God is three in one. He, that God is um, a personal God. He's not an impersonal force in the world. He's not an it, you know, Um, he is a a person, even though that that it's, it's a mystery, of course. And he's in, in some ways, God is totally unlike us, but he wants that God wants to relate to us, I think is, is really core to our, um, to our spiritual formation. And so I worry a little bit about moving away from, from, from pronouns and kind of avoiding personal language for God altogether, because I think it's really important that we, that we relate to God as 
as a person. And so I'm, I've never been compelled by language of like creator, redeemer, sustainer. Um, even though those words tell us what God does or what he, what God has done. I, I still think that um, what God wants us to, to recall is that we relate to God as to a, a, good a very good very loving parent and that's why the language of father and fatherhood is so powerful for me now in the piece I recognize I have a good earthly father and so it's not hard for me to imagine that I also have a good heavenly father that is not the case for a lot of people right that the language of father is painful um it calls to mind painful memories and so in that sense, I, I am, I'm very sympathetic to recovering motherhood language for God for, for um, people who have been wounded by their earthly fathers to say, um, God is nurturing and tender and he, you know, he longs to gather up um, his Israel as a mother hen gathers up her chicks. I mean, this is, this is maternal, soft, tender language for God that is derived from the Bible. And, um, it's unfortunate that we've really lost and overlooked that language, um, that we, that we tend to think of God only as this authoritarian, um, disciplinarian. He's always, he's waiting to crack down on us. He's waiting for us to slip up when we have this language throughout scripture that is tender, that is, you know, quote unquote feminine, um, that I think we really need to recover in our conception of God. Um, so that doesn't quite, I mean, it, it's obviously a really complicated topic with, with lots of implications, but I think for me, um, uh, and I should also say I'm an Anglican, and so part of me is just, you know, I I kind of default to, well, this is the language the Anglican Church has used for, you know, 500 years or 400 years, and so I'm okay. <laughs> if if people before me have have blessed it, then I I'm okay with it, you know. Um, but I yeah, all that to say, I'm like I'm very sympathetic to. Um, the recovery of feminine language for God, I think as long as we don't move away from remembering that God is a person and, and wants a personal relationship with us. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think, I think human constructs of God are our attempts to define what we've experienced in God. Um, so God is nurturing like a mother. God is like a perfect father figure. God is all these things and more to be discovered. And I think around this conversation, around the language we use for God, I think equally as we expect um, others to use um, the constructs that we personally feel like we need to use, we also need to unpack our own reasons around that and also understand mm. that other people's stories matter. And so as you shared, uh, like I have experienced, um, I love my father who's probably listening to this podcast um, that, you know, it, so for me, using that language uh, has deep meaning. Um, and I also have a very wonderful mother. And so, you know, those, those passages, especially from the Old Testament, this idea of God being a, a, a nurturing um, mother is also resonates with me. Um, 
you know, mm-hmm, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's difficult, you know, so if God is neither sex nor gender, um, you know, this is this biological construct that, that God created, um, that we see within us, um, you know, it, we have to, I think, grasp the fact that, um, these are, these are our attempts to try to define an indefinable God. So God is, um, transcendent and outside of both of these things. So you can't, you can't gender mm-hmm. God, God is God. And, and I think our demand, and I'm, I don't mean just, you know, expecting people to adjust based on what your perspective is, just a person in general, not you, but I think demanding that God have a gender says, has, says more about us than, than it does to do about God. And so that, mm-hmm. you know, for me, mm-hmm. as I look around this conversation around, um, you know, uh, gender roles and gender equality, um, I can often see that as a, um, as a starting place for many churches who are nowhere close to, to, to where they are, should be on around this conversation. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I imagine, um, you know, as I, you know, was experiencing this book, I imagine others have experienced this book that it gave them life in, in a lot of ways. What are, what are some stories that, that you could maybe share um, feedback you've received from some of your readers? Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been so encouraged to hear from individuals. I've heard from a lot of young women who are in college or just starting out in their careers saying this book just really encouraged me to think differently about my work and to really um, strive for excellence and to embrace my ambition in my job in a way that I think they didn't feel like they had permission to do that. Um, I think for a lot of young women in the church, there are very strong messages about, um, you know, marriage and family being their first priority in their 20s. And it's been really encouraging to hear from women say, young women saying, you know, yes, I want to be married or I want, I want to have a family, but I also really care about my job and I find a lot of joy and satisfaction there. And I'm not going to just give that up, you know, even if I do get married and have children. Um, That's been really encouraging. I've also heard from women who are, who just had a baby and are thinking through, you know, when to go back work and if to go back to work and then just saying like your book gave me um and I think permission I think that's the word that's come up a lot is is permission to prioritize my work not that it's the only priority or even the main priority but not to step away um when they could figure out a a solution with their employer to come back to work in a timely way so um yeah, and I, I think I, I would be remiss not to mention I've been really encouraged to hear from men who have read the book and have been encouraged by it or enlightened by it because, I mean, the, the book is called A Woman's Place and it has bright pink type on the cover. So I understand <laughs> it's not necessarily marketed towards your average American male, um, but I have had a lot of men read the book and just say that they've gained a lot from it. And that's been really encouraging to me um, because, uh, you know, we, we have this assumption, I think, in, in a lot of churches that women can teach other, you know, when men speak and write, they teach the whole church. But when women 
speak and teach and write, they're only teaching women. And I, I don't ascribe to that view. And so I really did want men to engage the book because I think a lot of what I'm saying is generally applicable to every, to every Christian. Um, and so I've encouraged, I've been encouraged by men who have taken the time to engage it and, and offer their feedback and say that they learned a lot from it. So. Hmm. I like pink, but maybe I shouldn't confess that. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, writing and writing something at this volume is exhausting. Um, you know, so, so taking a step back from, from this book that's been out a while now, what's given you the most joy and life from it? Mm. Yeah, I think I, I, I've really enjoyed being able to speak to a diverse group, to, to diverse groups of Christians about these topics. Um, so just, I think something happens when you write and publish a book, it goes out into the world. You have no idea if anybody's going to read it. And then you start getting feedback and you start getting invitations to come and speak and something happens in speaking. You, you see an immediate reaction and people want to come up and talk to you about it after, after your talk and just seeing that immediate connection and, and response and seeing wow, my ideas and my, um, my thoughts are really changing how people think about God, think about themselves, think about their daily work. Um, just having that immediate feedback has been super rewarding and realizing that, you know, I, I, am, I am going to women's only events, uh, women's church events, but I'm also being drawn into the broader faith and work conversation in a way that I think is is good because there just aren't that many women shaping that conversation. So that's been super rewarding. Can we be honest for just a moment and, and maybe not to denigrate a particular group of people, but what is the most incompetent response you've received about this book? (laughs) I've got to know, you've got to share it with me. Yes, I get, I get, many, you might say, incompetent responses to my writing on a regular basis, and most of it I just try to ignore. But yeah, I, I think, so when it first came out, there was a blog, a, a prominent blogger um, who didn't read the book, but he was reacting to a, a piece that would, was written about me and the book. And he had a very strong reaction and he felt that I was denigrating stay at home moms. And he also drew in the fact that I am single and don't have children to delegitimize my argument. Like, Oh, you haven't experienced this personally. So what do you know? And that response was really, I mean, I should say, thankfully, a few friends who know this blogger went to him and said, hey, like, your reaction is not actually in accordance with what Caitlin writes in the book, and maybe you should read the book. And I don't think he ever did, but what can you do? Um, But also just saying, like, you know, bringing up Caitlin's age and marital status is super sexist, because you would never you would never delegitimize a man's perspective based on his age and and marital status. Um, But 
for a woman, oh, she has to have experienced motherhood to be able to write anything that could have implications for motherhood. So that was super frustrating. Um, I do not engage with this blogger. I try to avoid him. Uh, I know friends who read him a lot and like his writing. That's fine. But I try not, yeah, that, that has been one of the more discouraging responses. But I, I think the, the positive response has, has obviously far outweighed that response. Well, we can really take the discouraging and turn it into encouraging if you want to name drop and the rest of us can, can go after him if you want. Um, I'm just, just kidding. I'm he, not going to put you in that place. He, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. I was yeah. being very facetious. But hey, I should have not stopped you because you were about to tell us. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was going to allude, but it, it's probably best that I, I leave it at that. Um, well, I love the book if it if it makes up for anything, uh, which probably not. We just met. So, hey, uh, tell me tell me what's uh, going on next. You obviously uh, released this book, released the group uh, study guide to it. But what are, what are the projects you have working? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, as of last week, this is brand new, but I have started uh, part time as an acquisitions editor for InterVarsity Press, which is based in the Chicago suburbs. That's where I live. And so I will be working over the next several months to acquire some new titles, new authors for their general books line. Um, so I'm really excited to, to get some kind of new, fresh writers into their mix. Um, and especially on, on issues of race, I think that that has really been um, something I've thought a lot about in the last year and something that I think I could um, help shape for the church. So I, I definitely want to bring in more conversations about, about race as it affects the church into their, into their books line. Um, and then next year, I will be working with some researchers at Duke University on a book project about the national uh, opioid addiction epidemic and writing a book that pastors and lay leaders can use in ministry to, to people facing opioid addiction. Um, I, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and it's, as, from what I understand, it's the number one um, city for drug overdoses related to opioid addiction. So this, this really hits close to home for me. Um, my, my brother who still lives in Dayton has, has friends who, you know, have, have died from, um, overdoses. So this is a personal topic for me, but it's also a topic that I think is really timely. Um, and I think will will really help ideally will really help the church, uh, really be the body of Christ to people who are, who are really suffering. So that I will be working on that book all through 2018 and it, it should come out the following year. Hmm. That's fascinating and sounds sounds like difficult work. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's a it's a really it's a it's a dark topic, but I think um it's one that we would be we would be negligent not to not to address and, and respond to with, with compassion and, and creativity. Well, based on following your readings for the last couple of years, you don't shy away from difficult topics. Uh, so I, I think you're the perfect person to, to address it. Um, well, if you want to stay connected uh, with Caitlin, you can see her on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. You can visit CaitlinBeatty.com. 
of course, there's this small website and publication that just came out in the last couple of years called Christianity Today, uh, and you can view all of her, <laughs> her writing there. Uh, Caitlin, this was an absolute joy and honor to be with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the conversation. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world.